Are you eating gruel, Edwin? <laughs> um, it's like slop. I'm, I'm eating Rice Krispies cereal. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to another dysfunctional Secret Movie Club podcast, 117, where Edwin is yet again giving me a time limit where he has to bail. But in all fairness, we were supposed to wrap in a half hour anyway. Today... <laughs> In Secret Movie Club Podcast 117, we are talking about unrealized projects that filmmakers never got to make or have not yet gotten to make. We can we can have that as well. Who's with us today? Hey, what's up? It's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. It's another day in Craigland where everything is censored, where everything is taken away from me. Even a bowl of cereal. Uh, and my name is Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. The Tyrant, as always, you can get tickets on Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com and write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. And if you like what we do, please like or follow us, recommend us to friends, or write us letters about how we can do stuff better and become a better community of film lovers and filmmakers. All right, let's get to this. So today we are talking about a topic that I find really fascinating, which are movies that filmmakers never got to make or are as yet unrealized. And the interesting thing about unrealized projects are you never know because we've seen dream projects get made and sometimes you're like, oh, Maybe that should have stayed a dream. You were a little too close to it. You actually didn't have the perspective to make a, you know, a movie that works. Weirdly, sometimes movies that you're not 300%, I've got, this is the thing that's my my soul thing, weirdly turn out to be the great movies, and then the things you hug too tight, you suffocate. But then also sometimes dream projects come out, and they're the greatest thing that the filmmaker ever made. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, Seven Samurai, you, you know, you can go on, Silence, we've been talking about, Scorsese Silence, you go on and on. Last Temptation of Christ was a dream project. I'm huge on that one. We'll get into it, but we're going to talk about the projects that are unrealized, and that's a whole conversation. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Yeah. I think I'd want you to go last. There's two movies that never got made that I have in my mind. One of them is Stanley Kubrick's, and the other one is Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, which, that's the version I wanted to see, but I guess the studio them over or something like that but uh he also i think he wanted to make like a 20 hour movie or something hey hey man that dude could do whatever the hell he want man he's like the real other literally couldn't yeah, I, I think he could man that dude's a legend there's a whole documentary about dune that is shockingly incredible there's so many visual storyboards of that movie that he wanted to do but never got the chance to do it he wanted orson welles to be in it which honestly Choice. One of the podcast people here around when we're recording this is about comics and films. Interestingly, Hodorowski went the other direction. He took all of his work from Dune and he put it in a comic series called The Meta Barons. So if you want to, if you weirdly want to see what Hodorowski's Dune would have been, just read The Meta Barons. It's kind of trippy. Have you ever seen it? Never heard of it. Never read it. There you go. Well, you can. Not a reader, Craig. Stanley Kubrick. You're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's Care Bears movie. Yes. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, Napoleon. I think it was right after Barry Lyndon, probably. That was supposed to be his next feature film, but uh, I guess uh, it didn't work out, and uh, he wrote the script for it. It, it just never got picked up until Spielberg, uh, production company Amblin, kind of picked it up, and they're going to do like a whole mini series about it which i think it's a mistake it shouldn't be a mini series it should be a feature like motion picture 
Because I don't know how, how much writing went into the script because it's it's not meant to be a miniseries. It's meant to be like a freaking movie, not not a show. I have not read the Napoleon script, but you can read it online, and I would love to. People talk about it. Um, yes, he was going to do Napoleon after 2001, I think. And it was too big in scope. He just didn't know how he could do it correctly because of the cost and the extras. So he put it aside, did a bunch of other things. Barry Lyndon is often theorized as him exercising some of the things he wanted to do in Napoleon because it's essentially roughly the same era. And then after he did Eyes Wide Shut, he famously was telling everybody, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to Napoleon. But then he died. So he was supposedly going to devote his 70s to just Napoleon, and then he passed away. Before he was killed by the Hollywood cabal. By the Illuminati that drinks baby blood. I, I was spending some time researching this, and it's pretty staggering. Some directors, like Del Toro and Tarantino, just have like an archive of things that all sound like the best movie. Yeah, speaking of our last episode. Yeah, and we, and we learned today, Tarantino had an unrealized Jenga Zorro crossover that has like a script, and is apparently, someone who's read it said it was a $500 million movie. That it's just completely unreasonable. But how cool. His Django or? It would have been a sequel to his Django, but uh, mixed in with his interpretation of Zorro. Some type of crossover movie. Sounds dope. Sounds sick. <laughs> My big unrealized thing that I've obsessed over is Sergio Leone's Leningrad. About the Siege of Leningrad. Yeah, I think the film was going to be called Leningrad, The 900 Days. If you're not familiar with Leningrad, during World War II, it was an Eastern Front battle in which the Russian city of Leningrad was defended and under siege for nearly 900 days by the Axis power. Uh, I think it's considered longest and most destructive battle in history and the costliest siege in history as well. I don't remember the number of casualties, but it was around 600,000 on each side. Leone wanted to do it after he did Once Upon a Time in America. It was going to be about an American photographer who was trapped in... Leningrad during the siege and Robert De Niro was going to play it. It was going to have a love story within it about him falling in love with a Russian woman and they were going to fight to survive the siege essentially. Uh, and I think that the interviews with him was that he would be killed on Liberation Day in typical Leone style of like this beautiful, sad thing. Uh, it was never made. The movie was moving into production and it was being co-signed to be shot in the Soviet Union, which in the 80s was a huge deal. This wasn't something that you could really pull off and there's all these cool stories about like that the opening was this huge tracking shot that was going to move from a composer playing Leningrad symphony and then moving out into the city as armed Russians are moving into position against this German panzer attack. Financing was being secured. It's going to be like $100 million. And then two days before the paperwork to have Leone sign on as director and go into it, he passed. And then I've, I was reading about conversations about, you know, would this ever get why it was never made beyond that after that, because that makes sense as, as to a why. And that there was never a script that was completed. Leone talked about he when he took over the project and this concept of a screenplay and all they found was this briefcase packed with books, really tedious history books about the battle. And there's been a few attempts to make movies about Leningrad. I think there was like a weird straight to video one. A few years back. The Russians have made like a blockbuster epic version of it. Morricone was coming back to do the score. I'm going to butcher this name. So the DP, Tonino Delicoli. Oh, yeah. Was on board to shoot it. I was going to shoot in 1990, the year of my birth. And yeah, two days before his director contracts, he passed away at the age of 60. So one of those weird, just like cruel world things, all things considered, I, I think so many of these unmade projects are fascinating, but the ones where you lost the director before when it was like 
inches from happening. But didn't you say that no script existed? He was working, I guess a script was being created, but he had sort of wanted to take over because he was, I guess, had become really obsessed with it being like as much non-fictional as it can be to be true to facts and then have this sort of romantic subplot within it. So there's no like confirmed scripts. There's nothing I could find that I could read because I love to read these when a script, like the Napoleon script's fascinating, but there was no confirmed script that can be found. I think pieces of it and maybe even drafts existed, but Leone's stuff was mostly just the research for the project. I, I don't have like one that I'm like specifically obsessed with, but I got a lot of little ones that I like to think about. I think my favorite one, even though I'm really glad it didn't happen because I think if it did, the later adaptations wouldn't have been able to happen. But the Beatles approaching Stanley Kubrick to try to make a Lord of the Rings movie. Would they have played Hobbit? Ringo would have been Frodo. This is my memory. This I, I could be slightly off, but Paul would have been Sam. George would have been Gandalf. And John would have been Gollum. Whoa. That sounds so incredible. I wish I could go into the alternate universe, but I, I guess they approached Kubrick, apparently, to make the movie. And Kubrick said it was unfilmable. And then Tolkien wouldn't give them the rights, like the estate. And then it just completely fell apart. But... What a what a film that would have been. I mean, it would have been totally different. I imagine it would have been a hoot because their movies with them as the leads, A Hard Day's Night and Help, I think are both hoots. How would they have weathered Kubrick's direction? Did they do any research into Kubrick? I don't know. That would have been inter- it would have been an interesting like because especially at the time the Beatles they were big and they had a lot of stuff behind them, but I don't they wouldn't have wielded their influence in that way because I don't think that's who they were at that time. You know what I mean? Like you hear stories about them filming help and they're not being divas in the sense that they're being demanding it's more so that they kind of just don't want to make the movie sometimes <laughs> right and so you hear you hear stories about how there's like a shot in the ticket to ride sequence of help i think ringo and paul run away from the camera and apparently when they filmed it they just kept running and then they just like ran off somewhere and smoked weed and <laughs> just hung out for a couple hours before returning to set because you hear those clash of egos like and it wouldn't have been the normal thing it would have been more like Kubrick working with like a bunch of children, I think. Um, I want to <laughs> believe that they knew Kubrick and his stuff and just like the sort of idea like we're huge. He's huge. Let's just ask. Like no thought process outside of that. Now I need someone to deep fake just scenes from Fellowship with the Beatles. Or just specifically, I want to see John as Gollum. It's so funny. And like, I would say pretty decent in terms of picking roles for the four of them, too, I think. Paul as Sam and George as Gandalf seem especially apt. I've always loved hearing what was going to be uh, Batman 3 for a while before uh, all that shuffle happened post-Batman Returns. My favorite being that all the people who are in discussions for the Riddler, like Robin Williams and John Malkovich and Michael Jackson was apparently lobbying really hard to be the Riddler. Apparently Marlon Wayans at one point had been cast as Robin. Oh yeah, he got paid. Or you when you hear about like what Burton's Batman three would have been, which would have brought back obviously Keaton and uh it would have brought back Michelle Pfeiffer. And it would have been Scarecrow as the villain. That would have been interesting to see how he did that. There's some other comic book stuff. With I know Sam Raimi has always wanted to make, back in the 80s, there was like a period where he was trying to make a Batman movie or a Thor movie. Gilliam wanted to make Watchmen in the 80s, which would have been, I think, really interesting. Again, speaking of last week, uh, last episode, Del Toro, that's probably one of the ones I'm the most sad about is that we didn't get Del Toro's Hobbit because 
they had the money behind it if they had just let him make even if it was like two movies it it, it just would have been a much cooler movie to see they clearly the studio wanted to make prequels to lord of the rings and that feels like the wrong way to make a hobbit movie (laughs) it feels like the way you do it is to make the hobbit and have it be its own thing and there are ties to lord of the rings obviously keep Ian McKellen as Gandalf. You'd have Gollum. Bring back Andy Serkis as Gollum. Any of the characters that would cross over for sure. You know, you can expand things a little bit here and there. The Hobbit feels like such a different book. It would have been really cool to have a different vision behind it because then it would pair in in a similar fashion. And Del Toro's style of fantasy is a lot more uh, like Baroque, I guess, or like elaborate than Jackson's vision is like very realistic in a way. And that would have been, I think, paired well with the story of The Hobbit. I don't know if it was confirmed too, but I, I think Del Toro had done extensive production design already. And I think some of that still stayed because there's a few characters and maybe I'm just, this is in my head from all of the stuff around that time. But I think some of the characters like the Goblin King were Del Toro's and his team's design. You can kind of tell it's their really interesting look to them. I think it was just a situation where the studio wanted it to be three, like a new trilogy of prequels, that continuation, as opposed to sort of trusting what created the original. Whenever these things come up, it's so interesting to think about the different modes of thinking in terms of story and business. And I don't mean that as an obvious thing, but I understand a studio saying, well, wait. Lord of the Rings was a juggernaut. Lord of the Rings made us $2 billion or whatever it was that it made us. And we would be fools not to take the Hobbit property and make another billion or $2 billion. It's going to employ 500 people or thousands of people. It's going to keep the studio alive for 10 years. You can understand the business. But when you go to the story side of it, if you do love story and you actually had read The Hobbit, you would say that's the worst idea in the world because the Hobbit is a novella and it plays beautifully as a novella. I mean, I I would resist the idea of two movies. I would say just make one kick-ass three and a half hour picture. It's going to sing. If you do it right, you're going to make a billion on it if it's great, but that's a story-minded way of doing it. So you really in The Hobbit, I think the tension, and then I think you add the third tension that Peter Jackson had been the auteur behind Lord of the Rings And they were going to bring in another auteur with Del Toro. And that must have been a tension as well. Lindsay Ellis has a really good video essay on YouTube about it. There's also a lot of like the reason why the movies became what they became partially was because when Del Toro left, the studio was like to Jackson, they told him, we're going to make three movies. We're either going to make them in America without you and leave all these like studio people in New Zealand, the people from your homeland without jobs, or you're going to make it in New Zealand. That's why if you look at behind the scenes footage of Peter Jackson on the set of The Hobbit, he looks like he wants to die. He looks like suicidal almost, which is, I mean, really messed up. And it's interesting to note talking to some of the actors too, Lindsay Ellis in that documentary interviews one of the dwarves who's kind of more of like a B character. And, you know, originally I think the pitch when Del Toro was on board is that, you know, it was going to be two movies and part of that extra lengthening was just going to be really focusing on like the dwarves and that group of characters. Because if you watch the movie, that's not even where they get the extra length from. Like all the extra stuff is just because they cut away to like 
Galadriel and Elrond talking about how there's a shadow growing somewhere. You know, at the very least, I kind of agree with you, Craig, that I think it probably should have been one movie. But if you're going to expand it, expand it from the adventure, like make the adventure and that group of characters more fulfilling. And that's a place that would be natural to expand it that would fit with what the story is trying to do, as opposed to trying to like prequelize it. Oh, so there's an interview with Del Toro talking about the fact that it was going to be two movies and his idea behind it, I think kind of makes sense. A lot of the expansive elements are, were being pulled from the Cimmerillion and the appendices of the Return of the King. And his idea was you have this sort of first film that stands on its own. That is like a Del Toro film through and through. It's not trying to be Lord of the Rings. It is his thing. And the second movie would be sort of the conclusion and some expanded stuff that would offer a transitional period that would sort of then kind of fuse into Jackson's Lord of the Rings so that it felt like a progression, but as like a ending thing to like, here's how things progress to lead where we are now so that it sort of felt similar. But I think the direct quote is different is better for the first one. For the second, I had the responsibility of finding a slow progression and mimicking the style of Peter for like the cognitive effect. So I want a book. I hate NDAs. Like I want books about these. I want to hear tell-alls. Now I'd be curious if we ever get to talk to Michael again. Oh yeah, Michael Pellerin, who did the behind the scenes on Hobbit as well. Those behind the scenes are, are also super interesting, but they really don't shy away from Peter Jackson being unhappy with a lot of it. And it's such an interesting idea that that was allowed to be produced. And like the shots of like Ian McKellen upset in front of a green screen and stuff. You're like, this is really interesting. It's like a film history thing. This gets into an area that I would love to be, I don't know. I just love to be profound and I don't think I'm I, I'm going to be. But I had this realization years and years ago with Lucas, for instance, and Star Wars, which is that there's a very compelling real world argument for why you do these things, which is that you employ thousands of thousands of people. I mean, Connor was just getting into it, although it sounded like they strong-armed him in a gangster way. But the idea is, look, let's not talk about art. Let's talk about the fact that we have a property that will employ people for two to three years, thousands of people, thousands of families will be fed, people will go see the movies. If they're not the greatest works of art in the world, everyone will live it's just a movie. It'll make its cost back. And from a business perspective, everyone will have benefited in a real world way. I think this is the way that these arguments from really intelligent people get put on to other intelligent people. You know, it's probably how directors get convinced to do a big property where it's like, look, you're right. You're going to get told what to do. A lot of the sequences are going to be farmed out to B directors and C directors who have been doing it for 20 years. You're going to get a little of your voice in. But if you see it through and you don't be a diva, you'll at least have shepherded a movie that made money. You'll have a reputation. You know, I'm sure this is how people sell people on this thing. And yet there's something in me that also says, but, you know, that's, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And again, I'm not trying to be a pie in the sky person, but I just wonder if there isn't an argument to be made for an enlightened studio exec, which I think is as rare as a great director, or a great movie, an enlightened studio exec who says, wait, you know what? Crunch these numbers for me. What would The Hobbit do if we just make a great single Hobbit? What would it do? I'd make 1.5 billion, like whatever, the Avengers Endgame. Okay, great. And if we did that, you know, Peter, would you be happy? Or Guillermo, would you, you know, is that the way to tell the story? Can we then, you know, find other properties? An enlightened studio exec would also engage and get the goodwill of everybody. And you would have a goodwill in the audience, too, because the movie would feel right. I've never heard anybody talk about liking The Hobbit. I've never heard one person talk about it being good. 
But even when we, you guys talked about The Hobbit, and I've never seen it, maybe for subconscious reasons of not wanting to see a, a Peter Jackson movie where his heart's not in it. That's capitalism, baby. I mean, that's, you know, people accuse, I mean, I guess it depends on if capitalism is left-wing or right-wing inherently, but people accuse, like, Hollywood of being very left-wing, and it's like, not the studio execs. They're all about that money, baby. They see what you said about $1.5 billion, and they look at the fact that the Hobbit movies made nearly $3 billion, and they say that's twice, that's a twice as big number. I understand that as a compelling argument. Let's just put our ideologies to the side. I understand that $3 billion that's also $3 billion that fed families and, you know, employed people and kept New Zealand vibrant and, you know, had New Zealand tourism. I'm not trying to be coy about the very powerful argument. That would have been the seven to $745 million budget. Maybe I'm talking to my dream of where, you know, my future self goes. But I, there's something to be said about the integrity of story as an inspiring thing across the board that might have, and again, people are gonna laugh at me, but may have effects and beneficial effects to your creatives, to the audience that no one's thinking about. A lot of people are burned out on cash cows. I mean, you know, people talk about Hollywood not being inspiring whatsoever right now. Well, why are we here? Why is Hollywood no longer the beacon that it used to be, the dream factory, the story factory? Could it be that people took their eyes off the prize about what made movie making magical? which was that tension and alchemy of creative and business and entertainment. You know, I, I, it's just, it's a much bigger conversation, but a new studio would be wise to maybe think about that and reconceptualize that. One of the movies that I am the most obsessed with is Federico Fellini's The Voyage of G. Masterna, which he was gonna make after Juliet of the Spirits. And he actually made an amazing documentary, if people haven't seen it, called A Director's Notebook. It's um, on a lot of the Criterion, I think the Criterion eight and a half. He had built the sets, the script was written. It was an amazing story about a man on an airplane who suddenly realizes that everyone's died and he's dead. And he is in the afterworld, basically. And the voyage of Gima Sterna was a Fellini dream project. The sets had been built. They had already done the tests. And then I don't remember the exact reasons why the project fell apart. I do think it had something to do with ballooning costs and producer trepidation and casting. And, you know, some movies take off, some movies don't. But I do think that the movies that come after G. Masterna, and there are a few that I love, Toby Dammit, Amarcord, Roma, Clowns, even Satyricon. I'm not the hugest Satyricon fan, but even Satyricon's a fascinating Fellini picture. But the incandescent period ends for me with Toby Dammit, the movie he made after Masterna fell apart. And I just wonder, had he made Masterna, maybe Masterna wouldn't have been great. Maybe Masterna would have been the last in the incandescent period. But it does feel to me like that would have been the last incandescent Fellini feature. And like you guys were talking about, I just get furious that I was robbed of it. <laughs> in a selfish way. I'm just angry. I wanted one more amazing Fellini picture because I am I love Fellini. We haven't talked about him tons. He'll almost certainly be one of our upcoming directors of the year. And his greatest movies, I think, are some of the greatest movies ever made. The unrealized Indiana Jones 4 movie, which I think we've talked about a number of times. It was a Frank Darabont script. Spielberg and Darabont did it. You can read the script. It's a good script. Too. It's a great script. It's called Indiana Jones and the City of Gods. It would have been the the same MacGuffin as uh, Crystal Skull. It was still aliens. 
Still went to the Amazon. A lot of that stuff, you know, Lucas, I guess, somewhere in the 90s, it said it's aliens. It was always going to be aliens. But if you read The City of God's Darabont Spielberg script, the movie, and I've said this a bunch, the movie they chose as their template because every Indiana Jones has a movie, which is why I don't, I have no idea what Crystal Skull was based on. But the City of God's movie was Casablanca. There was no kid. There was no son, no, no mutt. It was just Indiana and Marion meeting and Marion is now married to a belloc like archaeologist. So instead of a freedom fighter, the twist was he's the bad guy. And Marion doesn't quite realize how bad he is. But it would be like, what if Marion had married Belloc instead of Indiana? And they go on this journey in the Amazon where Indiana has to clear his name and figure out what's going on. And it plays like Casablanca. Sean Connery would have returned. He had a good little part. Sala would have returned. Sala had a nice part. Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls is its own thing. A thing that I sometimes find super engaging just because it's so nice to see things. I think now that we're getting a new one, my opinion may change, but I just, I want that character so important to me that selfishly I wanted this like send off type of thing that felt warranted. And I hope that the new one can be, because I think um, Mangold's very talented in that, um, that, but City of the Gods, and it could just be, you know, the hindsight of what we got instead, but it does read, it reads so well. And I just want that thing so selfishly. It reads like the fourth Indiana Jones picture. It feels cognitive to everything before. I haven't read that script. If you want to be sad, read it. I'm I'm already. That's my secret cap. I'm always sad. What? Um, (laughs) Imagine a movie that reads like a good Spielberg movie written by a good Frank Darabont. That's literally how it plays. And you're like, oh, two really talented people. And then the final one I think is interesting, which is the big question mark because, and I I say this because I do actually still think it's a question mark because Francis Ford Coppola is very good at, and I mean this as a compliment to Mr. Coppola. I mean, if people don't know this, I I actually am am obsessed with Coppola uh, and maybe I'll get into it in just a moment. So this is someone who has an extreme amount of respect for Coppola and what he's done in his life. But supposedly, Megaopolis which has been a dream Coppola project and a script has existed as far as I know for 20 or 30 years. I think ever since the late eighties, early nineties, Coppola has said he's doing it. They've announced that Adam driver is the star. They've announced the budget is like 125 million. They've announced that it's going into production. I have no reason to think it's not other than Coppola is very good at self publicity. And he has in the past talked about things as if they are happening and then they don't happen. And I respect him for doing it. You do have to sometimes start the engine yourself. But Megaopolis is this story that sounds like a Japanese anime in live action which is about a city based on New York, but it's a fictional New York. It's even bigger than New York. It's some kind of megaopolis where you see all these things happening, like a metropolis, like a Fritz Lang's metropolis as directed by Francis Ford Coppola with his obsessions and fascinations about systems and America and the powerful and the not powerful. And I hope he makes it. I guess my concern would be in his mid 80s, is it going to be the version he would have made in his late 50s, early 60s? But I, what I want to give him kudos for is anybody who's been paying attention to Francis Ford Coppola, he's dropped 145 pounds. I don't know if anyone's seen. He actually uh, like went out exercising to get into mental shape for this picture. And he's putting his own money behind it. He also went and re-edited a bunch of his movies, which I'm not as hot on. But my understanding was that he did that re-edited Cotton club re-edited godfather 3 re-edited outsiders to get into mental shape as a filmmaker it's just one of, it's one of the things that i've throughout my entire interest in 
film have heard about since especially like the mid 2000s. I feel like there was a period where it was like maybe taking off in like the late 2000s. Yeah, I was going to have Matt Damon in that iteration. I was reading up about there was test footage shot. They had like financing secured at one point. There's one story that something about I think it was right after I think it was supposed to be made right around early 2000s. 9-11 happened and the concept of making this movie in New York that's like about trauma and stuff was like not a good idea. So it kind of derailed it and was put on hold and has never been able to come back. That's really interesting. I wonder if there's like a building that gets blown up in it. He's pretty open with stuff like releasing like the Godfather archives with all of his work. I would love to see sort of what it was and what it when it's made, if it gets made, what it became. Because I think the transition to that would be a really interesting read for film history stuff. I end with Megaopolis because I actually think it's one of those fascinating question marks when a director does get to realize an unrealized project. Will it be the final Coppola masterpiece? He's talked about it forever. This is my final epic. Like he said, this is why I get all jittery about it. He said, no, I'm going back to Apocalypse Now mode. He said, I'm going back to Godfather mode. This is the final one. And so the question is, is it or is it not? You know, and maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, but it's exciting. I know another one I had looked at was Ridley Scott's take on Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Blood, I really love Blood Meridian as a book. It's one of those that I don't really think it, the translation doesn't really function in film because it just feels like so much of it is in the characters' heads and stuff. So it's one of those that I'm kind of glad didn't get made. But then I saw Bone Tomahawk that felt like someone sort of tapping into a lot of the ideas behind Blood Meridian and, and in a way that works. So I kind of feel like I got a version of the movie I wanted through someone else's lens. Uh, do you have any movies in that realm that sort of did that? Where like you didn't get a thing with the thing you got instead? Sometimes sometimes you don't get what you want, but you find yeah. out that you get what you need. Yeah. <laughs> or like a canceled project. You know, someone didn't get a do. Like George Miller didn't get to do his Justice League movie, but we get Fury Road. stuff. So I don't think that's the actual arc of that but in that type of realm his justice league movie would have been dope though yeah so dope that would have been sick (laughs) um that's another one that i'm mad about i'm mad about sam raimi not getting to make spider-man 4 john malkovich was going to be the vulture campbell was going to be mysteria right it was going to be like a cameo it was going to be one of those scenes where like at the beginning of the movie spider-man's like booking a bad guy and it's bruce campbell as mysterio I was going to be talking about Ridley Scott. I, I always think about, I actually have never seen the original Gladiator, but I've always been really hyped about the sequel to Gladiator that they've talked about. That was going to involve Russell Crowe, like going to Hades and like venturing out of the underworld or something. I read about that, that one, they gave Crowe a script and he was like, I don't like this. <laughs> Fair. You know, we've talked about Cronenberg before. I like to believe and maybe erroneously that nothing is unadaptable. It's my belief that filmmaking is all about figuring out how to adapt the unadaptable. And so I would say that Blood Meridian, which which I you know I'm a I, I really like Blood Meridian a lot. I don't know if I can say I love it. If I'm being really honest with myself, I love the brilliance of it. it. Just it sticks with you in a in a very particular way. It for sure, yeah. And and it's by its design meant to be unsatisfying in a way, just in terms of what you would want to happen versus what you know. For folks who don't know, Blood Meridian is considered one of the greatest novels of the last fifty years. Cormac McCarthy and essentially deals with a young man who joins a band of 
really awful outlaws who are headed by a man named the judge. And the judge is one of the great, (laughs) I don't know what you would call him. He's beyond a villain, like character who he makes so much sense. He's unsettling, but he's almost the personification of amorality or evil depending on how you want to see that. He's almost beyond the devil. If you'd very specifically through the eyes of a child who can't really comprehend that. He's like an evil god, almost. And it's a Western. But I, I, Daniel, all I can say to you, and I want to see Bone Tomahawk, would be, I think, like we've talked about in a lot of things, you just have to figure out how to tell that story cinematically. It couldn't be a one-for-one Blood Meridian adaptation because a novel's a novel. You just have to figure out, I'm going to tell Blood Meridian my way as a movie. In regards to like Ridley Scott, some of the stuff I've seen about it was the things he was pitching toward it were interesting of sort of like this. He called it like a double rated X <laughs> feature where I was like, oh no, like I don't think, and I, maybe that's just tied to me. My interpretation of what my experience I would want from this is would not have been that necessarily. At least I don't think I never saw it. So how would you have adapted? Let's say they're like, hey, we're hiring you. This You got to do it. How would you adapt Blood Marine? I don't know because I guess so much to me is wrapped up in, I think you have it from the child's perspective and you have to sort of build the characters to be in the depiction of how a kid's viewing them. Like they're evil, but how does a child who doesn't understand the world necessarily perceive evil when it's all he knows and all he's experiencing and trying to process that the book's written without punctuation and in very crude English. So it's a hard read and that part of that works. So translating that to screen i think would be a really interesting concept there's another interesting book called ice cream star it's about kind of a post-apocalyptic thing where language is starting to falter and the book's written in first person in a you like really need to read it slow because it's hard the vocabulary is so limited and broken in a way that makes you feel like you're in the world but also is not unsatisfying to read but a challenging dense read which I'm really drawn to. So I don't really know. I haven't thought a lot about how I would adapt something like if I were to try it, give a stab at Blood Meridian. I just think so much of it has to tie into this character and you need some of that hyper violence. But how do you frame that in a way that doesn't glorify it? It needs to feel dirty in the way it feels dirty, but also has to, it kind of needs to shock. But at what point is, are you just doing shock value? And that's sort of that I have to wrap my head around. Yeah, what I think you could do it. I would almost want to make a movie about the real lawlessness and feel of almost being beyond the frontiers of civilization that the West must have felt like at some point and being in a world where a Europe exists and societies exist, but you're in this West where people make the law can do whatever they want. To me, it would be like a nocturnal Homer story. I'd want to make the Odyssey if it all took place at night in a hellish landscape that was still fascinating as a child, but slowly realizing more and more and more that you're on the river sticks in hell. And I think you would want to delve into paradox, which would be a child or a young man's realization that I am a moral person, but I am surrounded by absolutely the worst people to have that realization around because they'll slip my throat if they realize this is where I'm going. So I think there would be a way that I would tell it for me that would I hopefully be Cormac McCarthy, but would also be my fascinations and obsessions. I think that's the only way you can do anything. Well, clearly whatever his pitch was about this concept work, because he got to work with McCarthy to make The Counselor. So they connected on some level. All right, pop culture, final thoughts. 
I don't know if that's appropriate to say. Sorry, I'm filling in the Edwin role. Uh, sorry about that. Um, speaking of unrealized projects, I uh, played Secret Hitler at a party a few weeks ago, and uh, that's a great party game if you're cool with the, the, the theming. Which What's the game? It's just a really simple like uh, hidden identity game where some people have hidden identities as liberals and other have hidden identities as fascist. One of those is Secret Hitler. And you go around, people become president, and you have to elect who the chancellor is, and you pass uh, laws. If you pass uh, enough liberal laws, the liberals win, and enough fascist laws, the fascist wins. But the odds are stacked against. There's way more fascist laws in, like, the deck. But at the same time, the more fascist laws you pass, you get these powers that both people can use. So eventually you can assassinate people, and if you end up assassinating Hitler, the liberals win immediately. Huh. That sounds like a great game. Yeah, and, you know, and it's not actually, there's no, it uses Hitler and fascist as language, but the actual, like, production on it is very um like there's no like swastikas and like the image of hitler they make the fascists look like little frog people guys we're dealing with fascism right now in the united states that it never goes away what are you talking about the pink people who made it or at least somebody who played it i remember talking about how the game is designed in a way to show how the best way when you're playing that game as a fascist is to pretend you're not a fascist <laughs> Which is interesting. And the way stuff gets passed and the way you start accusing each other of it really presents an interesting like spectacle of American politics. You get a few drinks in you and it gets uh, down and dirty. I didn't mean to be glib, but that's my uncle, Dave, who's totally independent. He doesn't give an F about liberals or conservatives. He He's his own person. He sent me a text. He, he called it way early. He said the only person who can beat Trump is Biden. And he said, let me show you why. And he called this out in like 2017 or something. He showed something that was going out to people in the Midwest, and it was Trump against black with his arms folded in literally like blue and gray police colors. And it said, I am the only thing that stands between you and a totalitarian communist government. And he said, this is the text that the Trump campaign sends to me and other people. And then it says, now send us $50 to protect democracy. <laughs> and I had, and when it's I science. saw that, yeah, and he said, look, no liberal, this is a whole thing, a conversation running out of time, but he said, Elizabeth Warren or any of those people are just going to fit Trump's stereotype of how he's fundraising money. Only Biden, whether you like him or not, is going to confuse and scramble people's heads in the Midwest. And I was like, I remember him sending that to me two years before. And he said, just know that this is what people are being told. So the thing that you're saying about how a fascist pretends not to be a fascist resonates with me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go off. But it's a it's a good party game. You should check it out. And uh, find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. Watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings. Twitch.tv slash NerdHala. I saw a lot of movies. And I'll be going to the Frida for the first time on the 23rd of July because my good buddy and and I run uh, ads for uh, Michael on Seed on 16mm is doing a Kung Fu triple feature at the Frida. And uh, so that'll be fun. Uh, be my first time going to the Frida. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but uh, I'm going to figure it out because I love Kung Fu movies and I want to see it on that scope-ass bridge. If you could do me a favor... Everyone at the Frida is the most beautiful soul. Please give them a small smooch on each cheek from all of us. I don't know I'm going to do that for you, uh, Daniel, but uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll find someone that will. I went again with Connor yesterday. I keep going to see RRR, the Indian Tollywood epic. It's just a special thing, and I love it.
I don't have anything more interesting to say about it. Please watch it. It's you'll have a you have I think you'll have a lovely time. Is it your favorite movie of the year? Uh, between that and I think Everything Everywhere All at Once are my two fighting for number one. They both bring the capacity of like movies are back, baby, in two really distinct things, but they also kind of pair nicely together. You're going to feel a lot of things through both of them. What do you think, Connor? I really liked it. I don't think I liked it as much as Daniel. I think I still have the issue with... Um, Daniel brought up in our, in our text exchange a couple of good examples of recent longer movies that I do like, but I, I largely do like movies to not be three hours long. And I think like the last time I watched an Indian <laughs> film, which was uh, Amar Akbar Anthony uh, a few years ago for this podcast, I think my reaction to that was like, I wish this three hour movie was like 90 minutes and then I might love it. And I think RRR, I w- it wasn't quite that much. It was more like I wish this was about like 30 to 40 minutes shorter. Because I felt like there was a lot of little scenes where a character would come out and say, like, would, like, exposit a thing they're going to do and an attribute to themselves. And then they would have a scene right after that that would illustrate that. And I'm like, why don't we just cut to that scene? But the actual scenes where all the stuff happens, which there is a lot, are great. And it's, like, super fun as a blast. And it's definitely worth checking out in a theater. It and Everything Everywhere are both, like, these, like, very pure maximalist filmmaking forms that are kind of dope. Our, the one negative I will say about Connor's experience, we went to, uh, I won't name the theater, but we went to a theater to see it and it was sold out and just a really, like a quiet crowd, which is, you know, typically a good thing. But my first time I saw this in theaters, people were losing their minds and it was so infectious. And I was kind of bummed that it was a, a quieter thing. I mean, I was re- I was reacting to a lot of it, to be fair. There's a few times, like, there was a guy in front of us who was really into it, and that was great. But I was, like, the first experience I had, people were, like, screaming and applauding ten times in the movie. And it was such an interesting, because that's an, I so associate that with, like, an opening night Marvel or Star Wars flick. So it was cool to be, like, this international picture that I sort of have heard good word on that I went to see is getting that. I thought that was really cool. I have to see it. It's on Netflix, which is probably a more reasonable thing to ask of a, a parent of three. Oh, no, I'm taking my kids. Yeah. Oh, honestly, they have a great time. I, I hope they love uh, Tollywood and Bollywood and Hindi cinema. I'm obsessed with it. So Probably a little violent okay. yeah. <laughs> for your kids. Also, the lead dude is one of the most attractive people I've ever seen. Second. I think it's pronounced Ram Sharan. Your wife said that he was hard to look at sometimes because he was so handsome. Wow. It's wild. Like, Rachel's got to do what Rachel's got to do, and that's fine. I get it. What? Once you see this man, no. you'll understand. No. I'm going to put up a picture of him behind also, me. Also, mustaches are in 2022 are in. Hey, okay, I'm down. Between Top Gun and RRR, some of the best facial hair I've thought of in years. I'm down with the mustaches, but you and Rachel. We'd still be in love, but I mean, I also would like to be involved in whatever capacity this, this can lead to. <laughs> okay. Oh, he is a handsome man. Look at that. Incredible. Look at that. But he just looks like the Indian Connor. I know. We look we look very similar. <laughs> Should I grow a mustache? Do it. Let me, I'll think about this. I don't have the middle part. I have a reverse chaplain. It's a stash still, dude. If you shaved your beard, that's still a stash. I can't do it. I tried once for six weeks, and all I got was what looked like radioactive peach fuzz. So, you know, a few minutes ago, I'm, you know, flippantly calling Donald Trump a fascist, and I can understand how... A whole portion of the country that voted for him and may still support him or may really be against the Biden administration would say, uh, well, I don't I'm not going to listen to anything you ever have to say ever again. You're just you're one of those liberals. What do we call them? Like panicky. And I just want to say a few things. One, I'm not a liberal. (laughs) I'm an independent. So anybody who accuses me of that doesn't know how I vote. I vote for both sides. I vote the person, not the party. 
Secondly, I would just say that there's something really important. I do want to say that I feel maybe I'm wrong on, and that's this. This man denied that he had lost. As far as I know, he's the first person, presidential candidate in our history, who refused to acknowledge that the other side won for a peaceful transition of power. He's maintained that for the last two years. And what I want to tell people and what my concern is and why I think we have these January 6th commission is if he runs again, and he may or may not, but if he runs again, he is going to run on the platform that he never lost. And he is going to run on the platform that he should have been in power for the last four years. And if he does get reelected, he's going to take retribution, as he's shown that he will, on everybody who basically said that he didn't win. And he didn't win. He was democratically unelected. Joe Biden was elected. You don't have to like Biden, but that's how a democracy works. So I just want to say to people that if you do love the country, if you say you love the country and you love our institutions and you love a notion that we are a democracy, not a monarchy, not a dictatorship, then you should get beyond your politics and say that Trump and Trumpism is bad for the country, which it is. And that's what I mean when I say that it's fascism. And if he comes back, you know he's going to deny everything and he's going to lie about everything and he's going to pretend like he won, which he did not. So that's my concern. And I just want to say to people, we can't, you can't sit here and be like, my life's too busy. I can't get involved in this stuff. This stuff is two years away. It's a year away. You know, we're going to have the midterms and then the presidential elections are going to kick up. So, you know, sometimes you got to get off your butt and you got to go get people to vote and you got to reach out to people and you got to say, hey, the country's bigger than any party and it's bigger than any person. It's all of us. So that's just something I believe. I could be wrong on it. We'll see. But that's what I meant. So. I'm using my pop culture and final thoughts for that. Anybody want to punch me in the face? Sorry, I got political. No, I think we're on the same team. I'm open ears to an argument for Trump. I'll listen to it. I haven't heard one yet that's persuaded me. The man's a clown. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there have been Democratic clowns too, by the way. Andrew Jackson was a clown, and he was a Democrat. By the way, do you know what painting Trump had over his desk? Painting of Andrew Jackson. So, uh, <laughs> clown recognizes clown. All right, uh, future Connor, tell us what's happening. Well, there's nothing happening this week, but we still have our Lost Highway event in a few weeks, and our entire October, November, and December are live. So you can check out and buy tickets to all those events. You can find out about all of that at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. Write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. As always, I want to thank our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz, for editing these podcasts. Secret Movie Club Podcast 118 is actually going to be about Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. That's what it's called. Because we've already talked about Raiders, but we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, which is this very famous, and we've already even talked about this a little bit, but this very famous shot-for-shot remake that these kids in Mississippi made in the 1980s. And we're going to be talking about fan-made movies and fan-made works. Maybe we'll get into some slash fiction. We'll get a little dirty. Who knows? We'll we'll talk about it all. But we are going to talk about fan-made works, which fascinates me. You know, Steven Soderbergh, uh, supposedly to prep for movies, will do Soderbergh edits of things. There's a Soderbergh Raiders edit, I think, that's all black and white and something else. But he does this stuff and this stuff fascinates us so we're going to talk about uh, Raiders the Adaptation and Fan Made Works uh, and that's it done guys thank you so much have a great week thanks everyone bye love you
that scared me. I thought Edwin had been in here the whole time or something. The ghost, he's ghost. of Edwin. Dude, he's, yeah. he's learned how to astrally project himself through a rigorous routine of transcendental meditation into our brains or not. He's going to show us uh, the our future and our past. Or it's just going to be us watching movies. <laughs> Remember that time you watched that movie I liked, Craig, and you didn't like it? We're going to sit here. We're going to think about it.